Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Malidoma Somme. Chapter 11, Hard Beginnings. To truly appreciate sleep, one must deserve it. To deserve sleep, one must work hard for it. It was wonderful to sleep, unmindful of threats, inside a room. Even though it felt odd to be home, just being inside a dwelling made me feel human again. I was as tired as if my body had postponed rest, real rest, during all those days of wandering in the bush. All my muscles demanded sleep with so much insistence that I sank into it irresistibly with an almost beatific surrender. I was very sore when I woke up, and it took me a while to figure out where I was. First, I thought I was still in the jungle because not far from me, I could hear an animal making strange noises. My legs were stiff. I tried to get up in order to identify the source of this sound which seemed to go on forever but it was as if I were nailed to the ground. So I fell back into an agitated sleep, too agitated to keep me in it for long. When I woke again it was daylight and I was more aware of myself and what was going on. I realized that my mother was sitting next to me, crying discreetly so as not to wake me up and I wondered if this had been the sound I had taken for an animal. When she noticed I was awake, she sniffed for a while like an engine that is running out of fuel. Then she became silent. I sat up and leaned against the mud wall. She left the room, I assumed, to get me something to eat. From inside my room, I could tell there were a lot of people outside. Voices of all ages and both sexes were conversing as if something exciting were going on. Normally, the owners of these voices would be sweating on the farm, waiting for their next meal to come to their rescue. But the rainy season was coming to an end. This is the time of the year when people say, even if you don't plow, you will eat. The millet had outgrown the grass and would yield grain no matter what. Judging by the coolness of the morning, which penetrated even into the small mud room I was in, it must have rained during the night. My mother returned with some hot millet porridge and a calabash and some hard food. With it was a large dagara spoon of a kind I had not seen in 15 years. When she indicated that she wanted to feed me with it, I refused. I indicated that I could do it myself, but I also realized that she wanted to do something for me to make up for the nurturing that had been discontinued too early in my life. The millet porridge was warm and good, like the heart that served it to me. So I ate with an almost religious attitude. She watched my every movement with her tear-stained eyes, and I wondered how long she had been sitting next to me while I slept. We did not talk because we could not, but a lot was exchanged anyway. I could sense her every feeling. She was all care, love, and sorrow, as if she understood that I had gone through immense suffering that her motherly care had been unavailable to alleviate. 
Was she feeling sympathy for me? Or was she being apologetic, fearing her son's anger? I could not help but wonder about the family's seeming abandonment of me. Why had no one looked for me? Why had no one shown up to claim me? With those thoughts, I began to experience a different kind of feeling, one of anger. It surged like the fire in the kiln of the local metal workers, voraciously fueled by my long exile. This anger was so intense that I thought for a moment it would kill me, but it didn't. It went away as it had come, though I knew it was never far. once again. She sounded a lot more excited than she had the day before. I asked her where she had learned French. New Carician Lita program, she said eagerly. The priest on the hill teach kids read write. Want see write name me? She picked up a stick and began scribbling on the dirt floor. I motioned for her to stop. She appeared disappointed as if I had robbed her of something important. I inquired about the priest on the hill, whom I assumed was my nemesis, Father Malloy. Gone home, she said. Kids started filling up the room. I recognized some of them as the ones who had been sitting next to me the evening before when I arrived home. I asked my sister who they were. Brothers of yours, sisters of yours. There were five of them, four brothers and a sister. I had been largely replaced. In the traditional world, fecundity is the yardstick by which loss is compensated. Having children means being blessed by the gods and the ancestors. Four brothers and a sister testified to the fact that my parents had prayed a lot for replacement children. That was how I felt in my heart, looking at all of them. It was impossible to tell how old anyone was. The oldest among them was called Laurent. He seemed unsure about how he fit into this whole thing, as if the general excitement caused by my arrival were beside the point. He always stood a little distance away. The others had no problem enjoying the distraction my homecoming had caused. They all bore Christian names. Guillaume, Cyril, Didier, Martine, and they looked Christian too, with all the medals they wore around their necks. The church's brainwashing had been going on in this corner of the traditional world, only at a slower pace. How long did you go to school? I asked my sister. Almost a whole year. Who else is going to school? Cyril and Didier will. Their age is ready. The business of literacy was usually preceded by a heavy dose of catechism. In the minds of the villagers, there was no doubt that the god from across the sea was a learned person who bequeathed literacy on his believers. I could see that all my brothers and sisters had been alphabetized. At that point, my father came in looking like an indicted man. His face was tense and overly serious. 
symptomatic of a person who was building arguments in his head. He ordered the room cleared except for my sister and my mother and sat down on a stool. But as soon as the kids were out, he knelt in front of me and grabbed my hands, speaking in Dagara, my forsaken mother tongue. When he stopped, I replied in French, assuming that he had recited some profound welcoming formula. Thank you. I'm well. I hope you too are fine. My sister's face was caught in a fit of hilarity. Then my mother began to speak with my father in Dakara. It became a rather odd dialogue and it was obvious that my mother was reproaching my father for something and that he was trying to justify himself. Her voice became harsh and her eyes angry. I did not know what was going on and asked my sister why she was trying not to laugh. Father said, the spirit of Bakai is great because you still alive. He said that he had been making sacrifices for you come home. My body became hot. I felt cheated as if someone had robbed me of the only heroic thing I had ever accomplished. I had battled my way home on foot, almost 300 kilometers through the jungle, only to be told that someone else had made it possible, which meant that all I had to do was walk. I objected. What? He made sacrifices all these years so that I could come back? Why didn't he just come get me? Why didn't he just ask that damn priest on the hill to bring me back? Ask him that. Ask him. My sister opened her mouth to speak, but nothing came out. Tell him, I insisted. Father spoke to her, indicating that he too wanted to know what was going on. I hear you, she mumbled, finally looking at me. But your words... I went to school nine months. I learned all, a few words. I not learned and you pick these words? How can I say, Father? What? You mean you can't translate what I said? I was roaring at her. Father spoke to her in Dagara once again. She answered. It appeared that she had translated my remark. I watched Father carefully while he made some kind of a speech. His face set in annoyance. He was looking randomly around the room at everything except me. In the end, my sister turned toward me unhappily. Well, I said, eager to hear the whole thing. She was trembling slightly, distressed at being in the middle of all this anger. Father says, ancestors predict. Nobody can prevent. And she was silent. I waited, certain she had more to say. My father had spoken for several minutes. That's it? I asked, incredulous. Father say, she replied, nodding her head. It became obvious that she did not want to translate everything for me. This angered me quite a bit. What do you take me for? What did he say? I say what he say, she replied in panic. I knew I was not going to get anything out of her or out of anyone in the room for that matter. I am among lunatics, idiots. God is a fool, I said out loud and in despair. Between me and the people in front of me, there was an unbridgeable chasm, so deep 
that it seemed it would take longer than I had been away, longer than anyone could afford to bring us near one another again. It appeared that communication alone would not take care of it. Here was my own family, but emptied of the stuff that would make them a family to me. Everyone was absent as far as I was concerned, and I sat there like a monumental question mark, feeling weak, alone, unheard. said my father, nodding his head. I wondered what he thought I had said. The warmth I had enjoyed in the silent company of my mother was long gone. There was no sense of home for me anymore. I began to feel like a fool who had bet on the wrong thing. This is what I had given up the priesthood for. I threw off my blanket and stood up. I needed to take a walk. After all those days en route, I still needed to keep moving on for a while longer. I'm going for a walk, I said. Everybody stood up with dismay written on their faces. The crowd in the compound outside also stood up as I appeared, followed by my parents and my sister. Everybody was speaking. I decided to ignore them. My first day at home was a bad one. If only I could remember how to speak Dagara. Noise without meaning is irritating, especially when you know that the noise is hiding from you something vitally important. There was a part of me that would have given anything to understand what Father was saying to me. The sun had already risen far above the horizon. The recently harvested millet field was quickly drying out from the pre-dawn rainfall. A useless rain, I thought. I found myself walking under the huge baobab tree, recalling some of the things Grandfather used to tell me about these trees, especially the witches' meetings at night. His funeral had been performed under the shade of a baobab. How long ago was that? I had been so small, so young. My life felt like a game that had too many players. And now it was over, and the Baobab had seen it all. Being under the tree calmed me a little. Did it notice that I was bereft? I leaned against one of its gigantic, protruding roots. My mind went back to school and I began to sort out the good from the bad. What really made me quit the seminary? Didn't I want to be a priest? Sure I did, but I had wanted to find a home in a priestly vocation that concorded with my vision. I quit, not because someone told me I could not become a priest, but because I could no longer deal with the contradictions of Christianity. The Bible spoke of love and goodness, but all around me I had seen vanity, deception, and cruelty. I could no longer accept the sacrament from such 
unclean hands. So I did not come home because I was homesick, but because I could not become a priest. Was it worth all that I had forsaken? I could not decide. The sun was heading toward the zenith, and it was getting hotter and hotter, even in the shade. My parents' compound, the house of my ancestors, looked desolate. It had none of the majesty of the houses in the seminary. There was a sense of secretiveness in the layout of the compound that I did not understand. What is the house hiding from? I asked myself. The windows were tiny openings that looked like bullet holes in the battered walls. That's what Western civilization wants to save, I thought. I'd had my own ideas about salvation in the seminary, and now I was out of the picture. If this place needed salvation, it would have to figure it out for itself. I had noticed I was walking. I had not noticed I was walking until I reached the river. At the end of the rainy season, there was still a lot of water in its bed, even though it looked shallow. Grass was growing out in the middle. I tried to remember what used to happen to me on these shores. Nothing, absolutely nothing appeared in my mind. Rather, I noticed that the grass was swiftly parting and that something was headed toward me. It stopped a few meters away and I saw that it was a crocodile. The two big eyes perched on the triangular ridges of its skull blinked a few times. Then it resumed a statue-like immobility. We looked at each other. There, I thought, was a being who had never left home and would probably never want to. Why was he interested in me? Crocodiles did not stand and look at people as far as I could remember. I was not afraid of it. Rather, I was puzzled. Looking into the eyes of the crocodile was soothing. It dawned on me that the Birafor clan had something in common with the crocodile, but what was it? I had no inkling. Once, I had known of the friendship between the crocodile and my family. Now, I had forgotten it, as I had forgotten so much else. Come, get me, I yelled at the animal. I am abandoned. The eyes of the crocodile blinked. I yelled again. It moved a few feet closer, but did nothing. I grabbed a piece of dirt and threw it at him, urging him to hurry up. He floated there in his deadly immobility for a moment, then took a dive. By the movement of the grass, I realized that he was swimming away swiftly. I heard a voice behind me and turned. There was a young boy, probably 13 or 14, looking at me intently. He must have been watching me for a long time. He was half amused and half fascinated by my behavior. He was almost naked and about as tall as me, though he carried more muscle on his body. His face was covered with a vast smile that expressed his desire to communicate with me. He clapped his hands on his chest and bowing in greeting, Ya'ani. This was a simple greeting that a person in my tribe could hear a hundred times a day. His gestures were emphatic, his voice soft. I nodded in response to show that I was friendly. He seemed familiar to me, and I thought he might be one of the kids who had surrounded me when I first arrived in the village. 
The boy came up to me and sat down quietly. After a while, I turned and looked at him intently. Part of me did not like this proximity. He looked back at me and said, Nyang Goli, hitting his chest with his hand. This was his name. I repeated it back to him. He nodded and smiled. Then I introduced myself, and he laughed out loud as if he knew me already. We sat there, him throwing stones into the river, me watching the stones glide on the surface of the water until they disappeared. He had nothing to say, but his presence took away part of my loneliness. When I stood up, ready to go back to my parents' home, he stood up too. We walked together silently. He was throwing stones all the time, but kept pace with me. We arrived together, and I invited him into my room. My brothers followed, and my room became crowded very quickly. Niangoli spoke with my brothers, but this time I did not mind that I could not understand what they were talking about. I was experiencing a sense of renewal in my shattered psyche. A friendly social event was happening in my own room, and this made all the difference in the world. Somewhere in the gigantic dark tunnel of the absurdity of my situation was a thin filament of shining light, nameless but spelling unmistakable hope. was the son of my mother's brother, my uncle. Guiso, as this uncle was called, was a man of calm demeanor who for weeks would come to the house every morning and sit with me as quietly as if I were his own child. I wondered what these people were thinking and why they were wasting their time on me, but I would have no answers until I relearned my native language. When that day came, I understood that the taming of my anger was a task assigned to my mother's brother. After my ordeal, I had to be softened, quieted, sobered, and made to feel supported. A father cannot provide this for his son, especially when there is already a serious problem between them. There is a natural need for transfer of reference. I don't know how to explain it in Western terms. It is as though the father must at some point efface himself for the son to survive, and this is when the mother, this is when the brother of the mother becomes useful the feminine in the male the mother in the man is an energy that can be triggered into wakefulness only by a male directly associated with the mother the uncle is therefore thought of as someone who carries water the energy of peace quiet reconciliation and healing Guiso was also a diviner and a healer whose priestly devotion to the village was unparalleled, and so 
he and his son Niangoli were performing their nurturing duties toward me now upon my return simply because my absence had delayed them. Whenever Niangoli came to the house without his father, and this was almost always the case, he would try very hard to speak to me and Dakara. He was, in this manner, one of the persons who reintroduced me to my mother tongue. Guiso, on the other hand, was in charge of my soul. He was a boburo, a medicine man. A little more than a month following my homecoming, my father woke me up very early in the morning and took me to Guiso and Niangoli's house for my first divination. This was to be the beginning of my real transformation. A person who stays away from his home for a lengthy period of time leaves a great portion of his soul abroad when he returns. Nothing important can happen until the person is fully integrated again, that is, joined back together, body and soul. The Boburo is in charge of determining how to do this. In my case, Guiso was going to find out what specific ritual would make me whole again. Guiso was already awake and meditating, perhaps about some former cases, but apparently waiting for us. He was seated on the galiguo, the part of the roof that overlooks the yard, with his legs hanging over the edge. When he saw us get off the old English bicycle and enter his compound, he stood up, coughed, and climbed down the ladder to meet us. He pointed to an old piece of carved wood in a starlit corner. It looked like a chair. Although it had three legs, it was so rickety it could barely stand. My father sat on it while I sat against the earthen wall. Using a bump built against the wall as a seat, we were in the Zangala. Everything in it was darkened by the black smoke of the constantly burning fire. On the right side was a row of enormous clay jugs some shining, some whitened by the remnants of yeast. It was still too dark to see anything except the dancing fire. Off in the shadows, I could hear the snores of Guiso's sleeping wives and children. This stopped, however, as soon as the divination began. The main entrance into this huge zangala looked like a large triangle its bottom wider than the top by half a meter or so. It reached from floor to ceiling and was never closed. I looked at Guiso, who was absent from us, as if in a trance. In his body, he seemed to carry all the years that have existed since God created anything, years that were quietly eating away at him. His total devotion to the welfare of his people guaranteed that he always looked tired. His thin, bony legs folded oddly around his waist made him look like the materialization of something unearthly. His body smelled like death, yet 
The light in his eyes was intensely alive. He was a personified spirit, a man of nature and of planet Earth, with an undivided passion for his work. The Contoman, the spirits, woke me up in the middle of the night and ordered me to stay awake, Guiso said after a long silence. I insisted that they tell me why, but they are so stubborn, they refused. That was the first time he had spoken since we entered the room. All that time, he had been taking down shells and medicine tools, turning them over and over, putting some near him, some a little farther away. From time to time, he would issue a growl of dissatisfaction. I watched with ever-increasing interest. These medicine objects were for the most part a collection of the very things that an uninformed person would normally overlook because they were too natural, too trivial to attract attention. Who would be attracted to an old bone or the kind of stone that could be found anywhere? There were bones and stones and pieces of broken metal remnants of tin cans, broken bicycle parts, and other unidentifiable metal objects. Some of these objects were tiny, others were a little larger, but all of them carried a sense of mystery. For the old man, power was in the trivial-looking thing, the thing that looked weak and valueless. When his tools were finally in place, Guiso grabbed an old piece of wood shaped like a V. Its right side was half the length of its left side. He lifted it into the air, gazed fixedly in front of him as if in a dream, then placed the stick on a wooden circular platform no bigger than a dinner plate, its bottom buried in the floor. He and my father were facing each other. Guiso growled again, sneezed loudly, cleared his throat, turned his face toward the entrance door, and ejected something from his mouth that landed in the middle of the compound. Then he began to speak. The spirits are always like this. They do not care whether we need rest or not. My father made a sympathetic noise and said, they should take that into account in managing your work. That seemed to encourage Guiso to complain more. I do not belong to myself, and I wish I did, but it's been so long since I lost the taste of thinking about myself. Father did not appear to have a lot to say. He emitted an au of acquiescence in response. Guiso took hold of his spirit bell with his left hand. It was a rudimentary piece of metal, forged in the general form of a cup with a clapper in the middle. The bell emitted a noise that seemed to be coming from underwater. In his right hand, Guiso held a gourd with an animal tail attached to its end. The gourd contained some beads and stones. He began shaking everything with a power that surprised me. He spoke clearly and powerfully in a language I did not understand but which struck every emotional cell of my body. Guiso was sweating. 
His body was shaking with convulsions and he looked as if he were suspended midway between his seat and the air. One could swear that an alien force had taken possession of him. Bent double, his eyes fixed upon the piece of wood in front of him, he spoke as if he were addressing an immense crowd. The shaker and the bell were making loud sounds that competed fiercely with the elder's voice. When he finished, he was soaked in sweat. He put down the bell and the gourd and grabbed the V-stick, hitting it twice against the wooden platform. Father moved closer, raised his hands, and recited his own invocational prayer, then grabbed the stick below the place where Guiso held it. No sooner did he touch the stick than it rose with the hands of the two men into the air, drew a circle three times, and came back onto the wooden platform with a sharp impact. The dialogue with the other world had begun. stick rose once more and then began pounding the wooden platform wildly until Guiso said something that sounded like an order to stop. The hands of both men seemed unable to control the unpredictable motions of the stick even though they hung on to it very tightly. Every word that came out of Guiso's throat was followed by a motion of the stick. The wooden stick rose again and landed on Guiso's medicine tools. It searched for a while, then pointed to a dried chicken leg. Guiso picked it up and put it aside. He ordered, run. The stick rose once more, then landed on something that looked like a empty cartridge. After this, it pointed to a hen's feather, a metal box, a stone, and numerous other items. Each time, Guiso took them and put them aside. Presently, the stick just stood erect on the floor and would not move even at Guiso's order. Is this all? Guiso asked. The stick rose in the air and pounded twice on the wooden platform. By now I knew that this meant yes. This had not been hard to figure out. Each time the stick went to the ground instead of the wooden platform, there was an atmosphere of uncertainty. Each time it pounded twice on the wooden platform, there was joy and satisfaction. Guiso repeated his question five more times, and each time the stick responded in the same manner. Convinced, he picked the first item and continued the interrogation. The divination went on for hours at an ever-increasing intensity, though it was difficult for me to always pay attention. It was hard to follow something I did not fully understand. Because of the language barrier, my curiosity could not always be satisfied. When the session was over, it was broad daylight. We moved into another room adjacent to the Zangala. This room looked like a hidden medicine room, and it was still as dark as a cloudy night. Guiso sprinkled me with some water contained in a clay jug. The water smelled bad. I was to find out later that in the village, any good medicine 
smells as bad as the other world. The rest of the day was spent sacrificing a huge number of chickens to a shrine. Some of the dead chickens were thrown into a ditch. Others were cooked with a various mixture of roots and black medicine. Toward the middle of the afternoon, we had a meal. The chicken meat was so heavy with medicine, I could not enjoy it. At the seminary, I had become used to plain food. Wiso's family joined us, and everybody had a great appetite except me. Toward the evening, we went into the medicine room once again, and Guiso anointed me with a variety of potions, speaking all the while. At some point, he cut my arm and rubbed something that burned unbearably into the wound. This was all part of a ritual done for my protection. I took it all in stoically. When we got back home, it was night. In the days that followed, I felt as if some kind of transformation had begun. It was as if I had been given an emotional painkiller. I was not as irritable as I had been. And at night, my dreams were no longer of the seminary, but of my ritual with Guiso. I shared my world with my mother and my sister on the one hand, and with Guiso, my uncle, and Niangoli, my cousin, on the other hand. I could not have lived without these people. I also began the long process of forgiveness. gave me absolved her of most of my charges against her. My sister coached me in Dagara, a language that I was able to remember within a matter of months, and she kept me informed of what was going on in the village when Niangoli was not around. She told me that the village council had met several times to discuss my case, and that people had been sent to perform a divination to ward off the bad things at work against me. Despite the care and love around me, my life still felt unresolved. As the days passed, I noticed that elders came into our house very early every morning, did some ceremonies involving sacrifices, and left. Guiso was there each time. Even though his presence in my life was mostly silent, I grew attached to him as if he were my own father. Each time villagers met or did something on my behalf, my sister told me about it. And why didn't they tell me, I always asked, annoyed. Because they don't have to, my sister inevitably responded neutrally. My homecoming had produced a crisis in the village as a whole, but more particularly in my own family with the sweeping changes underway in national politics and the economy, homecomings were becoming common throughout the 30 or so villages in the country of Dano. But most of the men coming home had not been transformed the way I had. These were the men who had been recruited to work on colonial projects such as railroad building, gold mining, or plantation work. In the beginning, they had been subjected to the rough 
discipline of conscripted labor. But independence changed all that. Now they had to be paid for their labor, and they no longer felt like slaves. A new culture was born, the culture of the working man who would live abroad because of his work, but who could return to his village if he wanted. I, on the other hand, had acquired something different and infinitely more dangerous, literacy. As an educated man, I had returned not as a villager who had worked for the white man, but as a white man. It all boiled down to the simple fact that I had been changed in a way unsuitable to village life and that this transformation needed to be tamed if the village were to accept me as I was. People understood my kind of literacy as the business of whites and non-tribal people. Even worse, they understood literacy as an eviction of a soul from its body. The taking over of the body by another spirit. Wasn't the white man notorious in the village for his brutality, his lack of morality and integrity? Didn't he take without asking and kill ruthlessly? To my people, to be literate meant to be possessed by this devil of brutality. It was not harmful to know a little, but to the elders, the ability to read, however magical it appeared, was dangerous. It made the literate person the bearer of a terrible epidemic. To read was to participate in an alien form of magic that was destructive to the tribe. I was useful but my very usefulness was my undoing. When people learned that I could write, they began coming to me to request my services as a scribe. They wanted to send letters to their relatives who had gone to Abidjan or Buake on the Ivory Coast, to Kumasi or to Accra or Sakunde in Ghana. As I wrote, they watched. Their eyes magnetized to the page as if I were performing a miracle. Soon, the word spread and more people began to come. Very quickly, I felt that I was becoming useful as a conduit, a translator, a kind of conveyor belt between people. They watched what they asked me to write take shape on the blank sheet of paper and were aghast as I spoke it back to them in bad Dagara. Meanwhile, Divination had revealed to the village council that I was able to read and write as well as the white man himself. It was even circulated that I knew more than the white man. This posed an additional problem to the elders, whom my father had told about my anger and inner turmoil. I never knew what else was being circulated in the village about me, but who I was and what I knew was seen as a serious threat. My sister was apprehensive, and she kept telling me that I knew too much. She even asked if I could forget some of the things I knew in order to avoid trouble. I wondered why she did not understand that knowing certain things is terminal. Sometimes, when people came to ask me to write a letter, she would beg me to tell them I had forgotten writing, or a great deal of it at least. When I refused to do this, she would say that I should write more slowly, 
and stop frequently to think that way I would convey the sense that I was not as knowledgeable as everyone thought I was. Learning the Gara did not diminish this impression. In six months, I was able to speak reasonably well, that is, a little better than my sister spoke French. Meanwhile, father and I had decided that we would postpone our conflict until such time as it was possible to communicate to each other directly. What choice did I have? Actually, this postponement helped soften my anger and helped me to forget a lot of what I had initially felt. As I concentrated more on learning my native language, the distance I felt between me and my family diminished. I remember the day I first greeted my father in Dagara. He had just arrived home from an errand on his bicycle. Profoundly moved, father rushed to hug me. His face radiated joy. His own son had spoken to him in the language of the ancestors. This was 12 days after my arrival. I had been in a good mood that day, but my mood disappeared fast as tears of sadness overwhelmed me. A father was happy because his 20-year-old son was able to speak his mother tongue. What fatal irony had postponed everything till now? My father thought I was crying out of joy, so he tried to reciprocate, but he found out quickly enough that I was crying for something else, and he cut his gladness short. Though it is dangerous in my culture for men to cry outside of the funeral context, this did not apply to me. I was not initiated, so I was not really a man. That evening, he asked me to follow him into a dark medicine room. He knelt, and I imitated him. Then he began a long speech in front of the shrine of the ancestors. I could not understand much, but it seemed to me he was giving thanks. This was the first time I had appeared in front of the sacred since I had left the seminary. I came out of the medicine room wondering if Father had made a pledge to the ancestors about me, and perhaps that our interaction that afternoon had given him a clue as to the outcome of that pledge. At that point, I could only guess what was going on around me, and such speculation often filled me with sadness. No matter what my father did to bridge the gap between us, I never felt close to him. My involvement with him was cold on my side, a little warmer on his side and always uncertain. I needed answers. He wanted to prove something to me by being active with me at the level of the spirit. Whenever the situation would seem appropriate to him, he would drag me to the ancestral shrine with water and ash for a quick ceremony. When he had asked me to follow him into the medicine room that evening, I knew that our relationship was moving one step up. What the step was, I did not know. Something had changed between us, but only the future would reveal its exact nature.